I'm John Pielli. Me? I know who I am! I'm a dude laying a dude disguised as another dude! And I'm happy to be with you on Tuesday, the second day of October 2018. Uh, really good this weekend in the world of sports. Uh, pretty exciting week in the National Football. Let's be serious. It was uh, some games that came down to the wire. You obviously had to finish with the Titans. The opposite of what I'm thinking about the NFL picks. No excuse. I'm thinking, and actually, I may be confident enough to be willing to do this because I don't think I could go any worse than what my picks have been over the first four weeks of the season. I think the one, three, and one, and actually, we had our first push of the season sets me up at 7-12-1 and one through the first four weeks of the season. And why don't I just pick who I think is going to win and just go the opposite for a week? It may be a better chance of me making money off of my bets, which to this point have been horrific. To this point, they've been terrible. And there's really no excuse for what's happened over the first four weeks of the season. Obviously speaks a lot to the parity speaks a lot to the point spreads. And the point spreads are a big deal because, you know, the handicap, the way these things are handicapped is set up to basically make the games even, which they've done to this point. It's like each game is 0-0 with the point spread added to it. Makes it very hard to pick. And I'm not making any excuses. I just got to do a better job. And, you know, perhaps maybe I should get some help when it comes to putting my picks together because to this point, through... 20 games that I've bet on through four weeks of the National Football League season, it's costing me money. And anything that anybody can relate to that costs them money is something you're going to be frustrated about. So I understand why gamblers, you know, have a little bit of a short fuse. I understand what a point spread is, you know, one or two, and it ends up being within a point or two in a wrong direction. I understand why people are flipping out over it. Obviously, this past weekend, you had baseball and its playoffs setting themselves up. I held off on doing a show yesterday because I thought uh, once the baseball season finished, which obviously we had one additional day added to the season because of the two ties that were finished for the division leads in the National League Central and the National League West, respectively. So you needed two one-game playoffs. Technically, game number 163, not a postseason game, but obviously a postseason-like setting. Congratulations to the Milwaukee Brewers, who won the National League Central. Congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers, who won the National League West. Both of those teams got a couple days off, and we'll watch as the losers of those games yesterday, the Cubs and the Colorado Rockies, will end up matching up in a game today. One team will advance to play the Milwaukee Brewers in the divisional round of the National League playoffs, and the other team will go home. So all things that are exciting and interesting to follow over the course of baseball. And of course, last Saturday, the Mets and their fans and the New York Mets organization had a very proper and good set off, send off to their star, the captain, David Wright. And what makes this difficult is you're looking at a player that was extremely limited. And the more I follow what happened the other day in the game that I was watching when I took my daughter down to City Field to watch the goodbyes.
to David Wright. And this was something that certainly was well-deserved. But the thing that stood out to me the most about this was David Wright's limitations. And I know being one of 43,000 people that were at the stadium on Saturday, the excitement level and the interest in being there to want to see David Wright kind of made it a little disappointing when he came out of the game in the top of the fifth inning after his second half bat. And would it have been too much? And I've heard this take a couple times too. Would it have been too much if the Mets simply just pushed him through the entire game? Or David Wright had decided, hey, he was going to play. He was going to go nine innings. And since it was going to be the last game he was ever going to play with, play for the Mets and in Major League Baseball, he was just going to go for it. If he's hurt, if he is in more pain, or if things get a little worse for him, he's got the rest of his life to recover. This is one game, one opportunity. I understood that take up to a certain point. But what totally changed me was just watching David Wright come up through the crowd, along the right side before the game, signing autographs, him running onto the field and off the field as he was warming up before the game, and even David Wright going out on the field when the Mets players were introduced before the game. You saw a dehabilitated player. You saw a player that really was toughening it up just to come out on the field and participate in a baseball game. And a lot of standpoint have wanted to see David Wright play. And I don't capable of playing nine innings in a baseball game. So I think the plan, which was set up, and essentially was respect to a guy that has meant so much to the franchise for a series of almost 15 years, giving him the opportunity to put on the uniform again, giving him the opportunity to be introduced, play the field for a couple innings, get a couple at-bats. That's what it was always intended to be. Now, his last out that he made, pop up, foul side, first base, first baseman Peter O'Brien for the Miami Marlins, who, by the way, was an original New York Yankees farmhand, makes a catch, ends the game, the career of David Wright, obviously ends the inning. He's not going to come up again. He goes out on the field and Mickey Calloway waits until they're done with their warm-ups. He comes out. He pulls David Wright out of the game. He gets the standing ovation. I understand from an emotional standpoint of what David Wright being on that field meant to the 43,000 people that were there. And if the majority of the people that were booing Peter O'Brien were doing it as, I don't know, at least halfway joking and kidding around, knocking whoever it would have been that caught the last out that David Wright ever made. And because of him, David Wright's never going to come to the plate and have a chance to get a hit for the rest of his life in Major League Baseball. I get that up to a point, but to put this guy in a category of a Chase Sutton or a Pete Rose or a John Rocker is simply unfair. Now, I don't look at New York Mets fans or New York sports fans in general and expect them to be fair. I don't expect them to be rational. There's a certain aura that exists over the fans, and maybe you could call it edge. If you want to, you want to say, hey, New York sports fans are the greatest fans in the world, and they have this edge to them. And maybe the edginess 
is what comes out when they have moments like this. And they're going to make sure that every time Peter O'Brien touches the ball, every time he comes up to the plate, they're going to boo the hell out of him. I can get that from a fun standpoint. I can get that from a standpoint of, hey, he was the guy that caught David Wright's last out. But the, let's be serious. Are you asking the guy to endear himself to you in order for you to not boo him every single time he comes up to the plate, every single time he's involved in a play in the field? In order for him to endear himself to you, he would have to have dropped the pop-up intentionally to prolong David Wright's at-bat. I would have had much more of a problem if he decided to do that. He did his job. There was nothing that he did wrong. You want to ingest because it was David Wright's last at-bat, get some frustration out, vet it, boo him a little bit, maybe boo him for the rest of the game. But to put him up there as public enemy number one for a New York Mets fan is completely asinine. There's no sense put to it. You look at Chase Utley. He was a guy that, of course, is going to be remembered for his slide on Ruben Tejada, essentially ending Ruben Tejada's career with the New York Mets. You want to boo Chase Utley every time he comes to the play, which, by the way, he's retired. He's going to have a run in the postseason. He's never going to face the New York Mets again. I had no problem with that. Pete Rose getting in a fight with Buddy Harrelson in the 1963 NLCS. You want to boo Pete Rose for the rest of his career in Major League Baseball, call him public enemy number one. The fans that were on the field in that championship series game were throwing stuff on the field at Rose and almost forced the Mets to have to forfeit the game. That's passion. I get it. Public enemy number one. John Rocker goes to the New York papers, make, make it fun and talking trash about New Yorkers. You want to boo John Rocker every time he comes to City Field or Shea Stadium? Of course it was back in the day. I have no issue with that whatsoever. You look at guys like Chipper Jones, Willie Stargell, Willie McCovey, players that did nothing but rake against the New York Mets. You can put Chase Utley in that category too. There was a series of players that made their career by dominating the New York Mets. As a fan, going to the stadium day in and day out, rooting for your team, if you have a problem with those players, I have no issue if you boo them every single time they come to the plate. You got Utley, Rose, Rocker, who did things that were going to piss off Mets fans. You had Jones, Stargell, and McCovey, guys who dominated the Mets every single time they played them. Basically set Chase Stadium up to be their stomping grounds, their home. You want to be mad at those players as a fan who come to the stadium and play or even come back to the stadium for appearances? I got no issue with it. But what did Peter O'Brien do that puts him in either one of those two categories? The answer is nothing. He did his job. First of all, when you're talking about odds, there's just a puncher's chance that David Wright was going to hit the ball and it was going to be hit to you in any way, shape, or form. So there were eight other players on the field that could have been put in that same situation. If the ball was hit to somebody else, would that other player have been treated the same way? I don't know. I mean, there were no former Mets out there. There were no players that were endearing the Mets fans that were playing for the Miami Marlins at that time. But it was just bad luck. And listen, Peter O'Brien would have been a, more of a fool he would have been more of a clown in my book if he dropped that ball on purpose. So he did his job. 
So if you're a fan and for whatever reason you want to put him in the same category as a Chase Utley or a Pete Rose or a John Rocker, and obviously you can't put him in a, in a category of a Chipper Jones, a Star Jordan, or a Covey, that's a different conversation. But the booing of Peter O'Brien just looks sillier and sillier. And if for some reason it carries on in the next season, there may be a couple people that might want to say something, that might want to boo. But if it becomes a resounding boo where the majority of the crowd out there is going to boo Peter O'Brien every time he comes to the plate at City Field for the rest of his career, you guys look silly. You guys look like clowns. Find a different way to show your patronage and fandom. Maybe embrace the next generation of New York Mets players, which, by the way, it, watching Wright and watching Reyes get the send-offs that they got over this past weekend was a reminder of the Mets' kind of changing of the guard that happened after the 1989 season when Keith Hernandez and Gary Carter you know, got the warm ovations from the crowd as they played in their last game and then moved on to the next part of their baseball career. Well, Jose Reyes may play next year, he may not. David Wright's not going to play next year. Obviously, neither Wright nor Reyes have had an impact on the New York Mets on a Major League Diamond in a series of years. Wright goes back probably to 2016, where he homered in the last three games that he played of that season. His impact in 2015, Reyes was a little good when he first came back to the Mets in 2016, playing third base the majority of the time with David Wright being out. But obviously those players are remembered for stuff they did a decade ago, for stuff that they did five to ten years ago. Certainly nothing that they did recently. When you looked at Hernandez and you looked at Carter, those were guys that were very integral parts of the 1988 team that had won the division and almost made it to the World Series, should have gotten to the World Series, lost to a team that they beat 10 out of 11 times during the regular season, just three years removed off of winning a World Series. So Wright and Reyes, as much as they mean to this generation of New York Mets fans, did not do the things that Hernandez and Carter did. So there were many differences when we're talking about the analysis of these two players and what they mean to the Mets fans and the history of the New York Mets franchise. But there's a similar changing of the guard going on. You know, the gravitation of fans should be towards Jacob DeGrom, who's likely to win the Cy Young this year. Noah Syndergaard and Zach Wheeler, offensive players like Michael Conforto and Ahmed Rosario and Jeff McNeil, who performed very well in the last couple months of the season. Who their next general manager is going to be? What type of moves do they need to make to get themselves in a position to be a contending team going forward? But all of that is going to happen without David Wright and without Jose Reyes being part of this team. Next thing I wanted to get into was another point. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this last game of David Wright. But the one thing that has bothered me all season, and it's not just in games against the New York Mets, it's something that the Miami Marlins as a team have chosen to do. And it's something from my baseball acumen and just following the game annoys me. Not worthy very much of you're the listener or you're the viewer. It's time. But i got to bring it up. If a catcher catches a called strike three or swinging strike three for the final out of an inning. Tradition in baseball has shown that you take the ball and you roll it out to the mound or you just throw it on the ground for the next pitcher to come out and grab the ball. Who decided that it makes any sense to take the ball 
and throw it around the diamond or throw it to the third baseman or throw it to the first baseman after it's strike three of the third out of the freaking inning. And maybe I'm the only one that's bothered by this, but every time I see it, I vomit in my mouth. Every time I see it, I just want to yell at the TV. Or if I'm at a game, I want to yell at the player that's throwing the ball to third base when there's three outs. Now, I don't know what kind of pad Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the United Nations and get a finding resolution to keep me from destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, mother I will massacre you. I will f*** you up. I don't know. But I got to move on. Obviously, a couple other topics we're going to hit up today. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Um, John Pielli. And the show is brought to you by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. So, thinking about this past baseball season, as we get into the postseason, you got the Oakland Athletics who are setting themselves up for a game in New York against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium on Wednesday. Obviously, you got the Cubs hosting the Colorado Rockies tonight. So the baseball postseason starts today. The Oakland Athletics had a very good season. And I can't judge a team based off of what their pitching decision is. In other words, their decision for a starting pitcher. But to me, it looks soft. And I understand the Oakland Athletics aren't blessed with the greatest of starting pitchers. It's not like the Athletics have a series of players that are competing for a Cy Young in the American League. A lot of what they've done this year can be considered uh, success through mirrors. Trevor Cahill having a comeback season at age 30. Brett Anderson, who hasn't been good in his last couple starts, was serviceable enough. The job that Edwin Jackson did this year after he was essentially a cast-off could have been had by any team coming into this year. So you're looking at what is the equivalent of three-fifths of the Oakland Athletics starting rotation, essentially being journeyman pitchers, essentially being, I don't know, reclamation projects. You would expect over the next couple of years the chances of either one of these three pitchers or any one of these three pitchers to have any success going forward would probably not be that good. The Athletics have a better-than-average offense. Chris Davis, Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Jed Lowry, a group of players that have unified amongst themselves and have performed very well. The biggest strength of the Oakland Athletics team is their bullpen. But my philosophy or my thoughts when it comes to that term bullpenning or using an opener, I think... I still think you want to take a chance that you could get some length out of a starting pitcher over the course of the game. I do think there are some concessions that are involved when you decide to use an opener or use a reliever to start the game. Now, I would expect at some point in this game, no matter how it would have turned out, it didn't matter if uh, Daniel Mengen was a starter. It wouldn't matter if Trevor Tingle or Edwin Jackson was the starter. It wouldn't matter if they went with their probably their top two options at this point, which are Mike Byers and Chris Bassett. It wouldn't have mattered who they put out there to start at Yankee Stadium. The likeliness of them being able to pitch what would have been the equivalent of a quality start or even get through five innings would probably not be that good. But I'd still want to take that chance. 
I'd still want to see if I could get a time or a time and a half through the batting order at, out of one of my starters. Because the longer you get out of the starting pitcher throughout the game, the less stress you're going to have to put on the relievers that are coming into the game. Now understand, a winner-take-all situation, a winner that season continues and will get to go to Boston to play the Boston Red Sox starting at the end of the week, and the loser goes home. I understand that. So because of that, you're going to want to use your best players. You're going to want to set up your bullpen, whether you need athletics or the New York Yankees or even the Chicago Cubs or the Colorado Rockies to have your best relievers not only available, but available to be able to push, available to be able to get a couple more outs than they would have wanted to over the course of the regular season. The manager would go to a certain pitcher and say, listen, you get three outs, we'll probably ask you to get four or five or maybe six. And the Blake Trinans and the Juris Familias and the Fernando Rodneys and the, you know, and I don't know why this guy's name isn't coming to my head, the guy from the, oh, Sean Kelly, you know, to use those guys and ask them to get more outs than they normally would. But that being said, you still have to factor in the possibility that things may not go right for one of these pitchers. In an ideal world, the Oakland Athletics would go to Liam Hendricks as their opener and get six outs from him, and then maybe move on to a Yasmero Petit, and then a Lou Trevino, and then maybe a Ryan Bookter into a Kelly Rodney Familia and a closer Trinan. That's an ideal scenario. But you're also talking about Yankee Stadium when they're putting together one of the most solid lineups in all Major League Baseball, a team that set a Major League record for the most home runs in a regular season, a team that set a record for the most players in double figures with home runs, a team that set a record for the most players with 20 or more home runs in a given season. At home, would you talk about being a almost a bad box, a very batter-centric batter or batter-favorable stadium to play a baseball game in? So you're expecting some offense in this game. What you'd want is somebody to be able to go in there and, and maybe with their best stuff, be able to shut down the Yankees for a couple innings. But my ideal scenario, if I was the Oakland Athletics, I, I would want to go the game pretty much backwards to the beginning. Ideally, you'd want to get Trinan an inning to pitch the ninth. You'd want to get Familia an inning to pitch the eighth. Sean Kelly to pitch the seventh. And you want to go maybe a little deeper than that. But those will be the last three innings of the game. So if I'm looking at the ideal scenario for the Oakland Athletics, and maybe my only opportunity or chance to beat the New York Yankees in a one-game playoff, I'd want to figure out who I'd want to pitch the first six innings of the game. And if you could cover three of those innings with a starter who could pitch decently, that only leaves you three innings to work to work on. And I think the Oakland Athletics are going about this wrong. And it's almost like they're throwing in the towel looking at it as a game where it doesn't mean anything to them. And I think if you're an Oakland Athletics fan, if you're a fan that has watched this team for a series of years not invest in its own players, for a series of years watch this team not put the most competitive team on the field, but have a good enough farm system to develop good player after good player and just not have the ability to hold on to them and keep them over a long period of time. I'd want to look at this game 
not as gravy. Not to look at his game as if it's just, hey, got nothing to lose. In fact, that's the way I would want to look at it. I would want to put the team in the best position to win. And I don't know if they're necessarily doing that. You know, Liam Hendricks, it's not like he's going out there throwing zeros. Ryan Stanek, actually, for the Tampa Bay Rays, was probably the best example of an opener. A guy that's going to blow gas through the strike zone, probably get a 1-2-3 inning, and then maybe you talk about how many outs you want him to get in the second inning. We're not getting that at Liam Hendricks. He's a guy that doesn't strike out more than you know, a batter in inning. He is a journeyman middle relief pitcher. This is a great opportunity for the Yankees to light him up in the first inning. So if you're the athletics, what is your backup plan? What if the first guy, first three guys reach base when the Yankees come up? If you're Bob Melvin, do you pull your starter that early? And if you do, are you going to go to relievers in the first inning? At some point, you're going to need some length. You're going to have to get the Yankees out 27 times if you want to have a chance to beat them. If you don't, then you're probably going to lose. If you're getting the Yankees out 24 times on Wednesday night, the athletics are going to lose. So how are you going to piece together 27 outs? Now, if the plan is to maybe get an inning out of Hendricks, if you can get through the first part of the Yankees order, and you go to a starter, perhaps Edwin Jackson, perhaps Chris Bassett, or Mike Fires, and you ask them to get through maybe the next two or three innings, or three to four innings, I think that's a good scenario for the Athletics. But I'm concerned that if Liam Hendricks doesn't have it, all of a sudden, Yosmero Petit and Luke Trevino, and even Juris Familia, could be in a game as early as the first or second inning. You're talking about a lot more outs you got to get. And you're talking about the makings of a blowout. So my question, are the New York Yankees in a position where they're dealing with the Oakland Athletics laying down? Are the Oakland Athletics essentially saying we're playing with house money we weren't supposed to be here. Let's put ourselves in a position where, hey, hey, if we're lucky, we'll win. Because that's all the athletics are asking for right now. They're asking for luck. They're not putting themselves from a pitching standpoint in a position where they can get 27 outs. They may be able to get the last nine outs if they want to go, you know, Kelly to Familia to the closer, Trinan. Maybe they could get those last nine outs, but those those first 18, they're going to be tough to get, especially when you're going to a journeyman relief pitcher to start the game. The over-under for this game for the Yankees has got to be eight or more runs. The over-under for the amount of runs that the Yankees are going to score in the first inning in this game should be four or more. This game should be over by the second inning. The only thing that could possibly work out for the Oakland Athletics is if the Yankees' bats are cold. That for some reason, they go through this ridiculous funk. You get nothing out of Judge, nothing out of Stan, nothing out of Torres or Anujar or Aaron Hicks or anybody else that comes up to the plate. Then all of a sudden, the Yankees may start pressing. If this game is tied or nothing going on through the first three or four innings, maybe the momentum can shift towards the Oakland Athletics. But I don't expect them to do a ton offensively. I expect them to put up maybe three, four runs, 
maybe they could get a couple runs over up a Severino or a Hap or Tanaka or whoever decides or is named the pitcher. You got no issue with any of that. But it looks like the Oakland Athletics are putting themselves in a situation where they're playing with house money. And the interest doesn't seem to be there. And it shouldn't be taken as a slap in the face to the group of people that told you, I told you so. The Yankees the three, scoring four runs in the first, three more in the third, and it not being close. I don't know if the Oakland Athletics are putting themselves in the best position to win this game. Now, the best scenario, based off of their announcement that they're going to go with an opener, would be to get one inning out of Hendricks and then go to a starter innings two through five. And then set up your bullpen, like I said, if you're seven, eight, and nine are are Kelly pitching an inning, Familia pitching an inning, and the closer Trinan pitching an inning, and maybe even Rodney pitching a sixth, then I like the Athletics' chances better. But I don't think they're going to get through the first three or four innings without the Yankees totally turning this game into a route, totally having Yankee Stadium rocking with balls being shot over the fence left and right. And as an underdog fan. I would love to see the Oakland Athletics pull this off because I do think there is a certain, I don't know, feeling that exists with New York Yankees fans, the New York sports media, that essentially is looking past this game and on to the Boston Red Sox in the ALCS. Now, it's okay for the media to do that. It's okay for fans to do that. But if the New York Yankees do that, man, it would, it would feel pretty good to watch them with the pompousness and arrogance and the expectation that they're going to move on to the next round and this game is going to be so easy for it not to come that easy for them, for fans to have to sweat it out, for the team to have to pull out a miracle to win the game in the bottom of the ninth. And what would happen? What would be the view of the 2018 New York Yankees season if for some reason they didn't win if for some reason it came down to this game against the Oakland Athletics and the Oakland Athletics are sitting there celebrating on the field in Yankee Stadium pretty similarly to the way the Houston Astros did it in 2015. To the, the same way that the San Francisco Giants celebrated on the field at City Field after beating the New York Mets in a wild card game. To watch your season, a 100-win season, setting all these offensive records, going through, yeah, some adversity through the season, but a year that went relatively smoothly for the New York Yankees and would have looked even better if the Boston Red Sox hadn't won 108 games. But man, the thought of what would happen if the Oakland Athletics won. Now, I, if I'm playing odds, I'm certainly laying you know, a lot more money if I'm betting on the Yankees, if I want to win anything considerably. You could probably go with a $5 bet and maybe win yourself $100 if you bet on the athletics. I don't think they have very much of a chance. That's all. We got one goddamn hit. I can't say goddamn Don't worry. Nobody's listening anyway. Now, that being said, I could feel that way. Anybody in the media could feel that way. Anybody that's a fan of either team can feel that way. But the New York Yankees cannot feel that way. If they do, they may be set up for a disappointment. That being said... I don't think it's going to be much of a game. And it's the, the best chance that the Oakland Athletics would have had would, would have been to find a starting pitcher that they feel comfortable enough with 
find a starting pitcher that they're confident enough with that can go out there and get some outs, even one time through the batting order or a time and a half through the batting order. But to make this a bullpen game for the beginning, the thought of Fernando Rodney coming in the game in the third inning, the thought of Lou Trevino and Emilio Pagan perhaps pitching in the second inning or the fourth inning, I understand you're going to see a lot of relief in this game. Even from the Yankees' perspective, we're expecting to see Britton and Batances and Chapman and Robertson and maybe, you know, Chad Green, maybe not even Chapman, because I don't know if the Yankees believe enough in them that it could get anybody out. But I'll tell you this, as much questions that may exist for the New York Yankees as they prepare for this game, and I know it's a lot of cramming, a lot of information that you're taking and putting in your head. It's like you're studying for that big exam in college. You want to make sure you have taken all the information that you've gotten through the syllabus and all of it to get ready for your final exam. There's a lot to put in there to get ready for this particular game. That being said, the Yankees are set to succeed in a lot better way than the Oakland Athletics are. And it's not even because the Yankees have that superior of a team. They do. When you take roster versus roster, the New York Yankees roster is better than the Oakland Athletics. But coming into the season, you could have said there were a lot of teams in baseball that had a better roster than the Oakland Athletics. The Oakland Athletics have made up a lot of ground because they got a very good team. They, they have a very good manager. Their team is as unified as any team in Major League Baseball. Now, in a, in a time when it comes down to one game, usually talent prevails. So that would be an advantage to the New York Yankees. But the Oakland Athletics are not setting themselves up to succeed and to almost experiment. And I know they've used an opener a couple times during the year. They haven't done it as often as the Tampa Bay Rays have. They haven't done it like other teams that have used it as a philosophy or a way to get themselves through their starting rotation. But I will say this. I don't like the thought of an opener for this game because who's going to pitch innings two through five? And you're looking at a, a essentially a shit show. If the Yankees score three runs in the first inning and you're facing crappy relievers or half-ass starters in the second and third inning, I can see this game getting way out of hand, way quickly, and the Yankees essentially getting themselves where they want to prepare to play the Boston Red Sox and understanding that the Athletics may have conceded this game before it even started. Last thing I want to get into, of course, this is the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLA.com. I want to throw out the number in case you're interested. 732-364-3598 at 732-364-3598. Anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. The last thing I wanted to do is, and I was thinking about this over the weekend, have we hit a time in the world of the National Football League where it's time to re-rank the top quarterbacks in the NFL? You want to look at a Tom Brady and say, he's the greatest all ball time? Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. Maybe you could talk about Joe Montana, Johnny Unitas, Peyton Manning. And we can have those debates all day. And honestly, I don't even want to weigh in on them. I don't really care enough about it. But those, you know, when you talk about the best basketball player of all time, the best quarterback of all time in the National Football League, it's obviously very polarizing. So you feel a certain way, let it, let it be out there. I don't think it really matters what I feel. But I think we've hit the time where there's the new generation of quarterbacks. And if you watch Patrick Mahomes play last night for the Kansas City Chiefs, leading that team to a 4-0 record, they're undefeated. They had a tough game in Denver, the mile-high element against a very good defense, and he pulled that game off. 
And Patrick Mahomes was not as dominant as he was in the first three weeks of the season last night. But he was still pretty good. And when the game was on the line, he marched his team down the field and found a way to give his team more points than the opposition. And that's the goal if you're a National Football League quarterback. It doesn't always have to be pretty, but wins are so much more valuable than anything else that you can say. It's not about the way you played. It's not about throwing a ball for 400 yards. It's not about looking great for most of the game, but making a couple key mistakes in key moments that allows you to lose a game. It's all about wins in a National Football League. And if you can talk about great quarterbacks playing for crappy teams, and those quarterbacks don't get the recognition that maybe they should deserve. But the blame gets put on that quarterback and that team. You, know, you think of an Archie Manning who played for a terrible team in New Orleans for many years. Dan Marino never got to a Super Bowl after his first season, never got a chance to win a Super Bowl after his first season. May have been one of the greatest throwers that the game has ever seen. May have, from a performance standpoint, with yardage and touchdowns and everything that he accomplished, may have been one of the greatest ever. But he's judged because he didn't win. He's judged because the team around him and perhaps the coach around him you know, he was lucky enough to have Don Shula, a no-doubt Hall of Fame coach, a guy who, by the way, you know, had, had led some other team, you know, some Colt teams to prominence, had led some Miami Dolphins teams to prominence in the 70s, was a Super Bowl champion himself. Shula and Marino. How did those guys never win? But when it comes to the NFL right now, you have some teams that are on the rise. And I look at a group of 32 quarterbacks. One team gets handicapped and unfortunately put in a tough situation because Jimmy Garoppolo is out for the season in San Francisco. So if Jimmy Garoppolo was in the mix, I'd have to rank Jimmy Garoppolo probably in my top, I don't know, 15, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15. But... When I put this ranking together, I have to factor in that Garoppolo is not going to play for the 49ers for the rest of the year. C.J. Beathard is a starter right now. I have to put him as my 32nd quarterback in the National Football League out of 32 teams. So if I'm going to go from worst to first, pretty similar in the way I do on my MLB predictions, 30 to 1 MLB countdown previews, which you see every March here on the Pats Ball Show and on Bases Empty Blog on JohnPLA.com. We're going to go 32 to 1. If Beathard is my 32nd ranked quarterback, who is my 31st? Well, that would be Josh Rosen of the Arizona Cardinals. And part of it has to do with with the fact that Rosen hasn't played a lot. He certainly hasn't proven a lot. He's on the field now. I'm sure his number or his reputation can only grow from this point, and I think it will over the course of the next series of weeks. So I go to number 30, another quarterback with the name of Josh, a rookie, drafted in the first round of their draft last year, Josh Allen. Now, Allen had a very good performance against the Minnesota Vikings in a game which probably shocked half of the football world with the Bills beating the Vikings. Well, they were brought back down to earth against a Packers defense, which was good, average, but never looked as extreme as it looked last week. And in fact, from a fantasy football perspective, if you had the Packers defense, and I don't know why you'd have the Packers defense, you'd see that they put up between about 30 and 33 points for your fantasy football team. A lot of it had to do with the ineptness of the Buffalo Bills offense. So I'm not ready to anoint Josh Allen as anything left. He ranks number 30. I'm going to go 29 to 25 real quick. 
because I don't want to bore people with a discussion about each individual quarterback. But if you have any conflicting news or issues, just comment on the stream, whether it's through Facebook Live, Periscope, or you want to give me a call, 732-364-3598. But 29, Jameis Winston. And I think that's easy to describe why. Hasn't been on the field. He's got off-the-field issues. He just got his job back. Sure, a lot of ground to cover. I think he could become a star still. He still has an opportunity. But at this moment, I think there's 28 quarterbacks that are better than him. Dak Prescott, 28. Baker Mayfield, 27. Sam Darnold, 26. Joe Flacco, 25. Andy Dalton, 24. Ryan Tannehill, 23. And then I'll go to 22, Case Keenum, 21, Eli Manning, 20, Marcus Mariota. And I think the last couple are good quarterbacks. You look at Manning and you say, Giants fans are probably losing their patience with him. They want to see him perform at the level that he did when he was leading the Giants to the Super Bowls in years past. He's decent. I don't, the only thing is when I talk about guys like Rosen and Allen and Jameis Winston and Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, all those guys got the opportunity to grow. And I would think a certain handful of those guys, if not all of them, would be in the top 20 by the time the season ends this year. They're going to get an opportunity to play. They're going to get an opportunity to perform. Their teams are going to grow together. I think in certain cases, you're going to see more unification. The teams taking the, the reins and respect of the quarterback and just taking itself to the next level. And if that happens, these teams are going to be better, but these quarterbacks are going to be better ranked. So as I'm moving my way up, David Carr, 19, Kirk Cousins, 18, Matthew Stafford, 17. 16 is Mitchell Trubisky, another guy with a lot of room for growth. May only get better. 15, Alex Smith, 14, Blake Bortles, 13, Andrew Luck. 12, Phillip Rivers, and I'll go 11, Carson Wentz. So that's what, 22 of the top quarterbacks in the National Football League, leaving just 10 to go right now. So number 10, Deshaun Watson. And I think Deshaun Watson can certainly get better. Up to this point, hasn't performed at the elite level he did during the time that he played last year before he got hurt. Number 9, Cam Newton. Here's a guy that continues to go out there and win. He's got a big game this coming week against the New York Giants. If he could get that team to a top of that division, he's been to a Super Bowl before. He's one of the elite quarterbacks in the league. He's certainly a top 10 in my opinion. Tom Brady, I think, has slid to eighth. Now, we're not talking about all time. And this is where, this is where people are going to get pissed off with me, and I understand it. And I understand the discussion. I'm ready to talk about who, if you want to, who the greatest quarterback of all time in the National Football League is. If you feel it's Tom Brady, I may agree with you. Even with that agreement, Tom Brady at this moment, as we get ready for week five in the National Football League season of the 2018-2019 season, is the eighth best quarterback in the National Football League. There's seven guys that give their team a better chance to win week in and week out. In most cases, you're talking about younger players, but 
some veterans that still have proven to have a lot more left. And I know it's hard to judge a quarterback over four weeks of the season. And I'm not ready to give up on Tom Brady. He's still a top 10 quarterback in the National Football League. And when it comes to the American Football Conference, I look at the Patriots until they're knocked off as being that team to beat. I don't care that the Chiefs are 4-0. and zero. I don't care about any other thing or storyline or plot or anything that you want to put put out there when it comes to the AFC to say is going on this season. The league's got to go through the Patriots. And until the Patriots are beaten, they're the team to beat. That being said, it doesn't mean that Brady's still the best quarterback in the NFL. He may be the best quarterback of all time, but at his age right now, he is not as good as the guy that I got ranked number seven. And that's Ben Roethlisberger playing for a Pittsburgh team that may seem to be on its way down. is dealing with a ton of turmoil with Le'Veon Bell, the potential of Antonio Brown. Does he want to be traded? Does he not want to be traded? Does he hate the media? He probably does. Oh, yeah, so do I. But I think Roethlisberger and Brady are about in the same boat, and they're probably pretty close. If you want to go Brady over Roethlisberger, I'm okay with it. I think that is as close of a comparison as I have with any quarterback in the top ten. Number six, Drew Brees. He's still leaning that offense. He may not be throwing a deep ball like he used to, but he runs that New Orleans offense very efficiently. Of course, he's got the benefits of having guys like Alvin Kamara and some of the wide receivers that he's got there. They have a chance to make some very good plays. I get it. What he's got around him may make him a little better than what Tom Brady has around him can make Brady better and what Ben Roethlisberger has around him that can make him better. Now, top five, Russell Wilson, five, Matt Ryan, four, Jared Goff, three, Patrick Mahomes, two, and Aaron Rodgers, one. You're going to get very little arguments when it comes to Aaron Rodgers being the best quarterback in the National Football League. I know he had to deal with a little injury problems last year. Maybe he's a little hurt this year. That all could probably impact whether he could be the elite quarterback that he's been in years past the Super Bowl winning quarterback that he was in the past. But he's still the best in the sport. And, you know, maybe his injuries will eliminate what he's able to do. But listen, if there's two minutes to go in a game and there's a quarterback that I want to feel to lead my team, it will be Aaron Rodgers right now. Same thing I'd say about Patrick Mahomes. You saw that yesterday. And there's a guy that's very quietly gone from being a guy that was expected to start in Kansas City to the conversation of where he ranks amongst the top quarterbacks in the National Football League. Ranking him second right now, sure, is putting a marker on his chest. It's putting a bullseye on him. He's going to be judged over what he does over the next series of games and the rest of the season. And if he doesn't continue to build on what he's done over the first four weeks of the season, I may look a little silly. But I believe in Patrick Mahomes more than I believe in Jared Goff. And Nothing to take anything away from what Goff has done. Goff is running a great offense with Sean McVay over there in Los Angeles. Todd Gurley, their ability to put points on the board and move the ball downfield. Goff has been that great. And who would have thought you'd get to a point in the National Football League where you think about ranking your top three quarterbacks, Rodgers, Mahomes, and Goff. You know, a lot of these other guys are still out there. But I look at Matt Ryan. And what he's able to do week in and week out. Russell Wilson, who very quietly in an offense in Seattle, which doesn't have many stars, 
doesn't really have a good offensive line. Certainly doesn't have that legion of boom defense that allowed them to win a Super Bowl and get to the Super Bowl the next year. Russell Wilson very quietly puts up numbers week in and week out. So a little recap of the show today. You know, if you're booing Peter O'Brien next year, you, you look like an absolute fool. Peter O'Brien is not Chase Sutley, Pete Rose, or John Rocker. He didn't do anything malicious. All he did was his job. He caught the ball. And if you want to be mad at anybody, I know it's hard to say it at this point, be mad at David Wright for popping the ball up. Be mad at David Wright for not lining a single in the left field. Be mad at David Wright for not hitting the ball over the fence at City Field for his last at-bat. That's on him. The pitcher got him out. The first baseman caught the ball because he had a foul pop-up. He's not supposed to drop it. Then we got the third out recorded by the catcher and him throwing the ball to third base. There's nothing more asinine in the world of sports. Are the Oakland Athletics laying down? Are they essentially conceding this game that they have against the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium in a wild card game? Sure looks like it. They don't use the opener too much. Is it Liam Hendricks and the rest of the Athletics bullpen? I think the over-under for runs scored by the New York Yankees should be 10 or more. It should be set at 10. I wonder what you know the gambling sites got to say about that. Okay, well maybe we should tell that to Rayman because he practically bankrupt a casino if he was a retard. Finally, quarterbacks ranked 1 through 32. Listen back to the show. If you got any issues, comment on the feed, either Periscope, Facebook Live. Leave me a message, 732-364-3598, or send some comments through the website, johnpiali.com. we got a contact form up there. Just leave your email. Whatever you got to say goes right to my email. We keep the conversation going. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Once again, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. I'm John Pielli. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.